You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Dean, the pastor at City Church. Thanks for joining us this morning. We think the gathering of the church is very important and very significant. Uh, There's definitely more to being a Christian than going to church, but there's definitely not less. Uh, So thank you for being here this morning. Also, if you're unable to be here, uh, thank you for watching online. Uh, It's important as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians that uh, we remember that the big picture of understanding books of the Bible is that we really take in all that God wants to say to us, that the way God primarily speaks to us is through the scriptures. So we do some topical series here. I think it's important to cover certain you know, matters that we think are really kind of family business, important for the church to understand. But also I think it's important to go verse by verse through books of the Bible so we can really receive all that God has for us and that we can't duck important passages of scripture that are in the Bible. Uh, so we're going through 1 Corinthians just verse by verse. We're not skipping anything. Where we were the week before is where we pick up the next week. Uh, so if you're behind on that, maybe you're new here, I'd love for you to go to our website or go to iTunes and catch up by watching or listening online. Uh, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 today, uh, the second half of it. And here, from a quick review from last week, uh, here's a verse that Paul used where he communicated to the church, to these Christians, after he was calling them out for the inconsistencies in their life, for the sin in their life, uh, for how they weren't actually acting like the people of God. But he reminded them this. He said, and some of you used to be like this, verse 11, as he was listing all these sins, but you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. You used to be these things, but God has dealt with it. He didn't deal with it as your sins deserve, rather he showed mercy on you and punished Christ instead for your sins. You've been washed, think of cleansed, made new, not who you actually used to be, You were sanctified, you were made holy. God's making you more like Jesus. You were justified. You were declared not guilty of your sins, not randomly, but it says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the spirit of God, the spirit is what renews us and regenerates us. So keep that in mind from last week as we go into some pretty important matters here in the text. That as Christian people, we're not defined by our sins anymore. We are not defined by the errors and mistakes that we have made. If we think we are, if we have a hard time believing that, we are functionally saying that Jesus' death did not accomplish for us all that he claimed that it did. So here's what's happening is the Christian people in Corinth, letters written to churches here. In the Old Testament, we kind of see the story of God pointing forward to redemption in Christ, how all things came about. Then we get to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see the life of Jesus, the story of his life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection. In the book of Acts, we see the church being formed and going forward, the role of the Holy Spirit in empowering them and equipping them. And we get to the letters of the New Testament, we see a lot of instruction to churches concerning doctrine and then how we respond to that doctrine. Here's what we believe, and here's now how we should live based on what we believe. So the Corinthian Christians had forgotten how being brought into union with Jesus Christ through their faith, they had forgotten how that had given them a new identity. And that ought to have changed not just their behavior, but also their lives inside, their hearts and their actions. 
And here's what Paul says, and he's quoting them here. He's writing them a letter based on communication they had with him. He's answering some of their questions. He said, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, thank God for that, and stomach for food, and God will do away with them both. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. That's really wordy, I know. It's like, what's he talking about here? Well, the Corinthians were distorting Paul's point about who they are, how they're cleansed, how they've been washed, how they've been justified. And since, maybe you've heard this before, hey, if God loves us, if God forgives us, does it really matter what we do? Does it really matter how we live? It's called antinomianism, the idea that it just doesn't matter how your behavior, your lifestyle, your holiness, it doesn't matter because you're forgiven kind of a you be you and you only live once kind of mindset, but with a Christian twist on it because God loves all his kids and we're forgiven so it doesn't really matter. It can pop up from time to time today and it was definitely prevalent back then that now since they're forgiven, nothing's out of bounds. Like when you say things like God loves you no matter what, which is true, they would use that as license to go live however they wanted to live. All things were lawful for them. But Paul points out in verse 12 that not everything is helpful. And actually even deeper than that, he says, it could be enslaving to them. That all things are permissible for me, they said, but not all things are helpful. Not all things are beneficial. They might be lawful, the Corinthians said, but I will not be mastered by anything. See, some translations actually use the word enslave. And in this context, their sexual misconduct, it turns out, was neither helpful, nor was it freeing, as they were claiming it was. It was rather enslaving. And he points to our physical resurrection, driving home the idea that our bodies are not insignificant. That our bodies one day will call, be called up to be with the Lord forever, and that God cares about our bodies. He cares about what we do with our bodies. So in their idea in Corinth, when your sexual appetites are awakened, indulge. When that human nature starts to make way, act on it. Don't deny the impulses that you have been given. Doesn't God want you to be happy? Doesn't God want you to be fulfilled? God doesn't want you to suppress your desires or maybe things they might have been saying. And they would think it just doesn't matter. Today we might go, it, it doesn't really matter as long as it's consensual. It doesn't really matter as long as we were wise, smart, careful, mature, in love. And Paul is telling them and is about to really lay in, not, not to judge them but to explain to them exactly what it is that is taking place in their you go do what you wanna do kind of attitude regarding their sexual appetites and sexual sin. Here's what Paul says. Don't you know, as in Christians, this is something that we have talked about before. 
Don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's body? That's a great doctrine there called our union with Christ. Really important doctrine to know as a Christian. When you become a believer, you're united with Christ. You're one with Christ. It's just incredible to think about. You're in Christ, the scriptures say. That's your new status. That's where you find yourself now, is one with the Lord, adopted into his family, but there's a oneness there. There's a union there that takes place between the Christian and Christ. So based on that, he says, should I take part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? He says, absolutely not. And that's not random there. He's, remember, these are letters written to churches so he's actually directly addressing what they were dealing with. And there were Christian people, Christian men from the church who were engaging in temple prostitution and would call it a permissible act for Christians. They would walk away from their wives, their families, they would go down to the temple and say they were worshiping and they would act on what they would claim to be their appetites, their desires, and claim it was all permissible for them. That it was all okay because you know, God's love, God's forgiveness, we're all Christians. So he's not randomly mentioning that. He's actually addressing what this specific church was dealing with here. But the application of what he's going to get to applies to all people everywhere. He says, should that be taking place? Should you take, since you're one with Christ, should you have a union with him, should you be taking this, your body, and uniting yourself with a prostitute. He says, absolutely not. He goes, don't you know? There's that wording again. As in, it's been said before that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her. For the scripture says the two will become one flesh. Now, is he in any way, shape, or form in here making this about prostitution? It may sound like it at first, but what he's getting to here has nothing to do with prostitution. That was just a literal, specific example of what was taking place. It would be easy to preach a sermon on why you shouldn't unite yourself with a prostitute. Least controversial thing ever. You could say things like, one, it's demeaning to the woman, that it fuels things like sex trafficking around the world, that it's illegal, that it's unhealthy, that it's adultery. I mean, you could go on and on and on about why it's not a good idea, why it's not permissible or beneficial. That's not what he's talking about here. Rather, he wants them to see what actually is taking place when they make the decisions and the actions that they do. He says, back to verse 16, don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute He's not saying as someone who did something illegal and did something demeaning and did something et cetera, et cetera, even though those things are true in our culture today. He says they become one body with her. He says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined the Lord, back to our union with Christ, is one spirit with him. What we're seeing here is him using what was they were doing at the time in this temple prostitution to help them understand what God actually created marriage and sex to be. He's using that example, those actions, that controversy inside of their church. 
Now, the elders could have reached out to Paul. We're not exactly sure how it happened, but he had received correspondence from them where they were saying, here's the thing that's going on with, our, with the men in our church right now. We have to address this. And Paul, rather than shaming them for prostitution, rather gives them a theology lesson about marriage and about sex. He says, our one flesh union is the purpose of why God created this to begin with. And that one flesh union of a man and a woman points us to, uh, who are husband and wife, points us to a greater union of our oneness with Jesus. You see, here, when he gives his argument about why no prostitution, he quotes Genesis, where we first see this actually created where God made a man and God made a woman. And I believe Adam and Eve were real people. Jesus believed he was real people. Reference them as real people. And they, were t- and they said the two became one flesh. Now that's more than sex, but it's definitely not less. What is Paul communicating here besides pointing them to a greater union in Jesus? He's letting them understand that it's never just sex. Never. It's never just that. And the world even knows this. The world might not admit it, but the world even knows that their definitions of sex are not working. And the world knows that it's never just that to begin with. Think about this for a minute. Now this part's gonna be a little heavy, so I'm, I'm gonna be careful with my words here. So I, think it's, I think words matter. But think about this for a minute. This, is, this part's gonna be a kind of dive in here. Why are we so different in our reactions to sexual abuse than we are other kinds of abuse? All kinds of abuse should create something in us. We should care about any kind of abuse. But does it even go up a level in our hearts and minds? when we hear the abuse was, was sexual? Doesn't the need for maybe trauma counseling, true help, maybe even go up a notch during that? Especially when it wasn't the person's choosing or fault. In marriage, doesn't adultery kind of change the scorecard a little bit? Like, like it's, I've counseled couples before where the, the, the spouse was almost relieved to hear that all the, the other spouse and the person, the girlfriend did, was kiss. They weren't pumped about that. They weren't excited about that, but they were relieved to hear it. Why? Because... Sex changes everything. Because it's never just that. If you're dating, the breakup, only two things happen when you really are, when you date, unless someone you know, tragically dies, which I want to not make light of that for a moment. It's either you get married or you break up. Right, those are the two things that happen. Either you get married or you break up when you're dating. So the person you're dating right now, you're either gonna marry them or break up give a little nudge. Hate to break to you. One of those two things are going to happen. No pressure. 
So that's how you, you know, meet people and enjoy people. But let's just say that physically, let's say physically that your relationship in dating was, was pure. And by pure, I mean that you weren't involved sexually. The breakup, while it stinks, it'll make you sad and awkward for a little bit, you know, the, the, this the normal stuff, it's gonna have nowhere near the emotional turmoil, the angst afterwards, the upsetness, the bitterness, the hating the next boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, whatever the, that, that person has, nowhere near the effects. Outside of being a human being and being sad it's over or those type of things or missing the person, that kind of stuff, nowhere near the effect that it would if it was a sexual relationship. And God knows that and cares for us and wants to protect us from all of that. So what he's telling them is not shame on you for being with the prostitute. He's saying, let's talk about what sex really is, what God actually created it to be, and that is a one flesh union. He told them, when you unite yourself with that person, you become one flesh with them. So the idea of sex in the confines of marriage is not some killjoy. It's not God keeping stuff from people. It's, it's clear here in this text and the fact that he referenced Genesis. Then he keeps going in Ephesians 5, the same writer Paul says, for this reason, talking about marriage, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two will become, there's that language, one flesh. Jesus being asked about marriage and divorce said this, haven't you read? He replied that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, does that sound familiar? A man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. You know what Paul's telling the Corinthians? He's telling them that sex is not for mature people. It's not for ready people. It's not for in love people. It's for married people. And the one who created it, I'm gonna listen to. The one who created sex for our good and for our enjoyment and with his plan for procreation I'm gonna listen to what he says about it. I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I'm gonna go with that. I'm gonna listen to what he said about it. So what's Paul's solution to this after he gives him that theology lesson? Verse 18, he says, flee sexual immorality. Here's what it does, you gotta you got run from it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God? He goes, you're not your own. If you're bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. You ever heard it before? Someone said that all sins are equal, they're all the same. You ever heard that before? That's true and not true at the same time. It's true in the fact that all sins separate us from God and all sins require the blood of Jesus shed for us to be forgiven. So it's true. But Paul just tells us here that, that sexual sin is different than other kinds of sin. Because it actually is sin 
not just that we commit, but against our own bodies. And that God cares about our bodies and dwells in our bodies. And we're told here also that, that he is the one who reigns and rules over our lives. So therefore we should glorify God with our lives, yes, but specifically with our bodies. So his answer is flee from anything else that is God's design. That not all sins are the same. Your body is the body God dwells in. That you don't belong to you. You person who claims the name of Jesus, you don't belong to you. Like you signed over your rights. Like you actually belong to God. And he's in control now. Like he's in charge now. Like the one ruling over you is also the one who loves you and knows what's best for you. What if we believed him? But keep in mind verse 11. I want to go back to what I started with. These strong words about what has taken place and what it is they're actually doing. Like it's never just sex. It never was just fun or innocent. That when that union, this is not my words, who cares what I think, what he says here, when, sexual, when a sexual connection happens, that those people become one flesh. That was not intended to be for anyone other than your spouse. God is warning you and trying to help you from doing permanent things with temporary people. Permanent things with temporary people, but there's really good news. He doesn't leave you in shame. He doesn't leave you in guilt. He doesn't leave you in sorrow. This side of heaven in our broken world, where there's, will there be regrets? Yes. Will there be moments of, I wish it was different? Yes. I don't think you're gonna think that way in heaven because we'll be fully redeemed, our thoughts, everything. But he says here in some of you, verse 11, if someone back there can pull that up again from the very beginning, and some of you used to be like this. The used to be can happen right now. Right this second. But you were washed. Washed. You were sanctified. Sanctified is being made holy. Justified, declared not guilty. In the name of the Lord Jesus, by the Spirit of our God. So here's my challenge to, to us about our own lives when it comes to others. Don't forever count sins against people that God doesn't anymore. If there's repentance, there's confession, repentance, don't count sins against people that God doesn't anymore. Now it's not 1 Corinthians permissible and beneficial where hey God forgave me, you should too, now I'm gonna go do whatever I want. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is that when you become a believer you now belong to the Lord. There's going to be times in your life where you're tempted by other lesser masters who really can have a hold of us. And the Corinthians are like, hey, no big deal. We all make mistakes. God loves us. Let's just keep doing our thing. Just keep doing our thing. And what Paul's telling them is, it's not just doing your thing. It's not. 
It's taking something out of what God made and applying it in a context he never created. Like, I'll talk to couples that have been through, been through you know, serious, you know, sexual hurt and relationship being broken and affairs, and I mean, that's probably 90% of the marriage counseling I do is that. I talked to a friend of mine who's a divorce attorney in town and said that the high, 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 high majority of their cases are adultery. High, like you said, like over 80%. Over 80%. And when I counsel couples, it's very confidential, you know, like, I'll, you know, it's always in private. And one thing that, that I have to remind them of sometimes when they just can't, like, work through, like, the hurt and the pain and the betrayal and the, all these kind of things, I have to tell them, y'all, like, this isn't supposed to be easy. Like, when we go outside of God's design, it's going to be broken. And it's going to be a mess. Like, almost like, a, not in a snarky way, but like, because I want to be full of compassion in these moments, but kind of like, a, what did you expect? Like, like, this is outside of what God planned. If we go outside of God's design, it's going to be a wreck. Like, it's going to be a disaster. But we also serve a God who picks up pieces and can make things new again and washes and sanctifies and justifies. So the hurt that's felt in sexual sin is, is supposed to feel that way. Because we're seeing one flesh unions carried out in places where they should never be carried out. There's only one that God has designed and it's a man and a woman who are married together. So it's not just this whole thing of God withholding from you. It's God protecting you. The one who created sex, I mean, he's, he's extremely pro it. He made it and he's perfect. We're the ones who broke it. But thankfully, God is in the business of letting us recover and, res- and pursue what he designed. So don't think that, you know, God's like the, the soup Nazi in Seinfeld, you know, where he's like, no sex for you. You know, that, that's not what's going on here at all. I, whenever I talk about this, I compare it to fire in the fireplace. Fire in the fireplace is wonderful. It's almost that time of year. We're getting there. Slowly but surely. Maybe 2020 will be decent for a couple months because it gets a little cooler out. Florida version. People love fire in the fireplace. Put on your fuzzy socks. People love it. Post on Instagram. Family stockings hanging up, whatever it might be. Sipping your drink. Watching your Hallmark Christmas movie. Fire in the fireplace is a good thing. Fire on the couch, not a good thing. Not a good thing. Fire on the couch, panic in the house. It's not the fire that's the problem. It's the location of the fire. And God wants to protect you from having fire on the couch. So here are these people, and they're dealing with, they're engaging in prostitution. And God doesn't just say, hey, don't be with a prostitute. He does say that, but he adds to it and says, because 
In other words, these aren't rules for the sake of rules. When you unite yourself to that person, you become one flesh with that person, and that's only supposed to be true of your spouse. So not only are you in sin engaging in the prostitute, you're also redefining God's design in a way that you never actually had the right to do so because as a believer, you belong to him. So if you leave here today feeling terrible about yourself, I have utterly failed as a pastor this morning. Don't get me wrong, there, for a Christian in repentance, there should be some regret, there should be some remorse, there should be some God. I've, but, but we need to believe that there's more forgiveness in Jesus than there is sin in us. Truly, like truly. Sometimes we have to fight for that, to actually like, really believe that. I mean, I, I just think it's not a coincidence, again, all scripture's inspired by God, that in between these, like, the first half of 1 Corinthians is like listing sins. The second half of 1 Corinthians is really going into the theology of what's taking place, how it's even bigger than sin. But in the middle of it, he goes, hey, whoa, you used to be like this. Like, God's dealt with this. Like, he's shown mercy on you. He's shown, he's shown you a love that, that none of us deserved. That Jesus died for sinners, like sinners, guess who that is? Us. And he's cleansed you. He's sanctified you. He's justified you. So the call now for the believer is to go live in that truth, to respond to that good news, to go live in that reality. And thank God by his grace that he lets us. So my prayer for all of us, one is that we will, if you're single in this room, that you'll commit to living in God's design for you. If you're married in this room, you'll commit to living in God's design for you. If you've fallen short here, that you'll commit to living in God's design for you. Like the, the, same, the same sexual ethics apply to every single person in this room regardless of their situation. And that is that God has made sex to be enjoyed and lived in the context of the union between a husband and a wife. Anything other than that is gonna to lead to brokenness and brokenness and more brokenness. But thankfully, God is in the business of picking up broken pieces and putting them back together for the glory of his name, for the love of his people, and for the good of his church. So let's pray together. Let's thank God for his grace and his mercy. Let's continue to commit to being a church who's unafraid to talk about these type of things because the world is, and we have the better answer. Like, we have the better way. So let's not be silent concerning it out of love for God and love for people. And also a love for ourselves. It's a healthy love. for The people that God has made and that he dwells in as his own. So let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're thankful that even in difficult words in 1 Corinthians, that there's hope spilled throughout that text that we who often break the design can quickly return to the designer by grace through faith. So those in this room who maybe have experienced this, uh, maybe sexual sin in their own lives, Lord, I pray that they'll be quick to repent because they're quick to respond to your love and grace for them. Maybe for marriages who have been restored in the middle of sexual sin or after, I praise you for that. 
You're a God of grace and restoration and healing. How, how, how amazing. But I pray for great days ahead into the future, even through the hard times and through the hurting times. I pray for great days for couples that have been restored through this. Well, how, how incredible you as a God of grace that picks up your people and carries us as your own. Lord, we know we belong to you. That we're in Christ. How powerful that image is. To know that the greatest union we can have is a union with you, being in you. Lord, let that assurance drive every other decision we make, every choice we make. Let our appetites ultimately be satisfied in Christ, who is the bread of life, who is the living water. And I pray that we will be a church that lives distinct lives, that point to our distinct God, especially in how we carry out your sexual ethic you've given us for your glory and for our good. Father, I pray that we will be a people who show much grace, much love, much clarity, much discernment, and that together we will be a people who fear you and reverence and awe and who love you, the, people, the one who first loved us. For those who are hurting here today, this text may have brought up past memories, past scars. Lord, I ask those scars will lead them to Christ over and over again, the one who already has redeemed them if they know you. And for those who don't know Jesus, Lord, I ask that you allow them to see that he truly is the way, the truth, the life, that you will open their eyes to believe and to receive and to trust in Jesus over themselves or anything of this world. I thank you for Jesus, and I thank you that we can now sing great truths about who he is, about our redemption in him, and about what he has done for us on the cross and through the resurrection, and we anticipate and eagerly wait his coming again. Thank you for all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's stand together and sing some good news and celebrate who Jesus is and what he's done for us.